You are listening to Genuine Chit Chat. This show is for real. Hello there, guys, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, we've got actor Tom Everett coming on Genuine Chit Chat for the second time. So any long-term listeners will recognise Tom's first appearance was on episode 124 of Genuine Chit Chat. I really recommend people go and check that episode out. It is a lot of fun. He talks about acting, being a tour guide, free will and determinism, and loads of other cool things too. So you don't have to listen to that episode to enjoy this one, but I recommend people do listen to it because Tom's just a lot of fun to listen to. So what can you expect in this part then, guys? So this is part one of the chat. It's an extra long one as usual. So this is part one. Part two will be dropping on this feed next week at the same time. But anyone who's a supporter on Patreon, that is patreon.com slash genuine chit chat. Anyone who supports the show for as little as one pound a month will get access to the Patreon exclusive feed, which gets early access to genuine chit chat episodes. Whenever episodes get split like this, the patrons just get access to part one and part two released in one unsplit episode. And then also myself and Megan have got an Afterthought show where we review TV and movies and stuff. They go on that Patreon feed as well. So make sure you check out the details of that in the description. But if you are not going to become a Patreon supporter, that's completely fine because I appreciate anyone listening. So in part one of this chat in brief, we talk about stagecraft and upstaging. And then after that, that's like quite a decent chunk of the conversation. It kind of veers onto Shakespeare, Shakespeare's influence, why Tom likes Shakespeare so much. He talks about some of the details of his upcoming role for Henry V, which I actually went and saw him perform that very role a couple weeks ago anyone on social media may have seen me take a few photos and things and uh, watching a play that's what it was and I did tag Tom Everett in it as well so you can make sure you check that out but yeah, that's more or less everything, guys. Um, there is going to be a quick promo for the American Slacker podcast. A link to their stuff is in the description as well. But I'm not going to ramble on here too much longer. So after this conversation has ended, I'll be back at the end to give you guys some insight into what's going to be in part two, as well as some other stuff that's coming up for Genuine Chit Chat. But make sure you check out the description because all the information is in there. Anyway, guys, without further ado, here is the promo for American Slacker and then Tom Everett. Hi, I'm Matt. And I am Jesse. So, like, what is American Slacker, I guess, right? The highest amount of dick jokes per episode per podcast. We've been on the air for 57 straight years. 57 straight years of dick jokes. Thing is constantly soaring over my head. And you pulling my chain and your weekly weird news. We're also cannabis friendly. We kind of sneak it in there, almost like you're lacing the brownies at the family reunion. It's a ride of your motherfucking life. Fucking 11, when there's only 10 on the dial. Weapons of mass destruction. It's a threat to society. Food assaults. Yeah, that happens too sometimes. An ostrich took a lit match into a fireworks factory. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that one. No, that's our third story. Oh my God. America, what are you doing? There was someone dumb getting fucked over. Well, you know, they should have never gave raccoons rights, in my opinion. <laughs> oh my God. You can help us. You can help everyone. Download our shit now. We're second America. Second America. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. Let us get started. We've been commenced preambling mainly me for 25 minutes <laughs> talking about myself as all guests know i've press record now sure. as all guests secretly know that i actually talk non-stop about myself for about an hour and just verbally waterboard people before they come on the show and then when i finally said everything i can about myself and how amazing i think i am then i let the guests talk and that's when i press record that's the secret guys of genuine chit chat that's what you don't know <laughs> 
It's not. Um, I'm here <laughs> today with Tom Everett once again. It's funny with actors, isn't it? Because I can't get rid of any of you. Just like Tonya Todd, you're on again before part two has even been released. And Tonya Todd came on my show episode 99 or 98. And then she was on episode like 101 or 102. So clearly, whenever I speak to you actors, you we speak a lot. And then immediately you want to jump back on the show. So clearly I'm doing something right. So how are you doing, Tom? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm good. Let me just say what a wonderful man you are, Mike. You just told me that <laughs> 10 times. Uh, <laughs> That's what I pay you for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, yes, very well. Yeah, no, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah. See, what, see what we can waffle on about today. Oh, it's it's always the the waffling is always the most fun conversations, especially when you're like, hey, let's talk about this, and then you don't, you know. Mm. It's uh, that's what we did last time. So now we're trying to do get back on the rails. Let's talk about stagecraft a little bit. I keep saying stagecraft. Is stagecraft a word people use? Because I feel like I may have either created that or heard it somewhere and think I know what it means. Is stagecraft a real word? Yeah, yeah. It's well, to me, stagecraft um, means it. It basically means the sort of. Skill that you have, the awareness you have when on stage, um, to you know be aware of where the other actor is, how to mm. move around the stage in you know proportion to them. Um, it it can mean a lot. It's particularly a word that a lot of um, teachers or directors use. You know, use your stagecraft, and I would take that to mean you know be aware of where you're standing. Don't sort of stand directly in front of someone. Or you know, block someone else's light if that's uh, what's happening. That sort of thing. Um, it's it's an interesting thing because a lot of people don't necessarily have it or can't quite grasp it. Um, mm. I was thinking of a, a story, and uh, as they come to me, there's even more coming up. But there was one story of a that I remember my first agent told me about a uh, a very uh, now famous actor. At the time, she told me the story because she was at drama school with him. Um, I don't. I just don't even know if it's worth mentioning his name. Um, I could do, couldn't it? Fuck it's, it. It's up to you. It's completely up to you. I'm going to leave that to you. I um, never want to put any pressure to anyone to say well, to yeah, name I drop mean, on the show. It's a it's, it's a story that someone told me about uh, the actor Riz Ahmed, who's uh, I think oh. just got nominated for Sound of Metal. Yeah, I was um, going to say because he's in Star Wars. I'm a massive Star Wars fan. He plays Star Wars. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bodhi in Rogue One, the fighter pilot. Yeah, and he's doing fantastic things. He's a yeah, a superb actor, wonderful on on screen, and incredible. Mm. At the time, I'd only she told me this. I don't know six years ago, um, so he wasn't quite you know way before Star Wars and that. And he'd done as far as I was aware, I'd only seen him in Four Lions, which is a superb oh, that's film. A cracking film. That that's yeah. a really really unheard of film. Benedict Cumberbatch is in that as well as a police officer. Yeah, um, yeah. for like a few minutes, I remember watching it. I was like, what? Sherlock's in this? Yeah, that's a cracking film. Four Lions, quite controversial. It's even kind of, it's kind of before he made it as well, wasn't it? Really yeah, it before is. Benedict mm. Cumberbatch. I think it's before yeah. Sherlock. He, he's very good yes. in it as well. Yeah, yeah, mm. it was because I, I had a conversation with someone about Sherlock. I guess on a podcast, and I love Sherlock, and I've been rewatching it recently. My girlfriend and I, so I decided to look online, and I was like, Sherlock basically made Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch's careers because after that, you just see the trajectory. You had, you know, yeah. Martin Freeman in the Office and things, and Love Actually, but then you see him in Sherlock, and it's like, oh, the MCU, the Hobbit films that they're both in, and this yeah. and that, and you go, okay, but yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah, <laughs> <Absolutely Ahmed>. so. <laughs> yeah. But so the um, yeah, the story that she told me was that um, he absolutely incredible state, uh, screen actor couldn't d- deny him that at all but on stage just had no idea where he was going he had no stage grasp he didn't know where to stand mm. he didn't know where to be looking at um and it, it, you know what it's actually a thing that it, that it can come up especially if you're sharing a, a small stage working with someone who has good stagecraft a bit just knowing where to be 
an audience should never be aware that people are trying to do it you know mm. but if you, if you can it's it should just look right and you can tell what it doesn't look right and you can see it but if it looks good no one's in the audience is sitting there thinking that's good stagecraft they're standing in the right place because it just it, you wouldn't notice it because it's but then if it doesn't look right you can see it and mm. uh, it's where uh, uh, um upstaging comes from so the upstage is the back of the stage um yeah so uh well technically if you're a stage manager which are the people that sort of do all the um the queuing they do the the lights they sort of organize the rest of the stuff that happens in the show from backstage and uh, up in up in the gods the upstage is always from essentially what the points of the stage is from the actor's point of view so upstage is i guess from an audience point of view the back the furthest away and downstage is the closest to them so right. then there's also like right and left and the right and left is from the actor's point of view not from the audience point of view anyway upstage it used to be called upstage because it was used to be well quite often still is um raked so it's on a slope mm. or a slant and uh if you're standing upstage of someone usually that's a position of power because the other person in front of you has to turn around and look back to you and it's, it is quite demeaning and it's very annoying if you're working with an actor who sometimes people can do it out of arrogance will stand up they will stand upstage of you so they are literally upstaging you and they're then saying i'm the most important person here even if in the scene they're not but they're going yeah i am and annoyingly if the person at the front bites then as an audience member you'll go oh that one at the back they're good because everyone's looking at them and they're not they're a fucking dick because they're standing in the wrong place <laughs> and they've got bad stagecraft and they're doing it for their own arrogance and they're standing upstage <laughs> I'm definitely people. <laughs> this is the snippet I'm using. I actually love it. I love the passion, how angry you are about people upstaging. <laughs> it's yeah, amazing though. It, it I love me hearing about it. Certain things like that because um sometimes I've worked with you work with so many actors that um I'm not hopefully I'm not gonna use this like hour or so to to rant about things I don't like. There are lots of things I love. Please do, I um, love it. But, the, <laughs> <laughs> but there there are a lot of things that actors do to to better themselves or to make themselves look good or to make themselves feel better, which has nothing to do with the play. And it doesn't serve the, the you know, the show, the play is the thing. The story is the thing. We're here to tell the, tell the story of, I don't know. I'm sorry to uh, say, let's the, say the play that you're going to be no. in. I'm well, yeah, yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah, but I'm the main character. And that's if, if anyone upstages me in that, I'll be very upset. <laughs> I can upstage them. I'm the king. <laughs> Henry V is the king. He's the main part of Henry V. He's the most important person in it. If he he's allowed to upstage other people, if people try and stand upstage with me to get me to look back, there is a trick you can do: is you can just keep looking forward and don't ignore acknowledge them, and then they sort of lose it, and they lose their power. You don't have to name names, but has this happened to you a couple of times, Tom? Is that's what's that was happening? It hasn't here. actually. Well, it someone tried it. And because he was doing it to somebody else and it was really upsetting with the person. And uh, it was, and he, I said, all you need to do is just keep looking forward. And if anything, come further forward. And uh, if, if you can sort of imagine that if you come further downstage, that you might lose a bit of your power. The more downstage you are, is generally seen as a, a weaker part of, of the stage. Hmm. But if you come a bit further, so you're so close to the audience, you almost become part of them. It can actually empower you in a way. Mm. Um, 
And if you don't ever look back or acknowledge it, because the audience sees it as almost like a mirror image, you can, it's the same with, I guess, with film, but really in theatre, you can talk, you can have two people both looking forward, talking to each other, and your brain will go, they're having a conversation, they're looking at each other, but they're not, they're looking at you. And there's two people <laughs> kind of, they're not two people sort of, you know, standing side on having a, because <laughs> that wouldn't work. You always have to cheat which is no one's going to get on because no one can see the video. I well, suppose. I always but did it I'm, in response with you. So on Zoom, we could just both like turn like that. I mean, talking yeah. like that. But <laughs> yeah. You always got to sort of cheat, cheat it a bit because you want, obviously you want to get your voice out to the audience. Um, there's nothing worse than saying your line upstage because no one's going to hear you when you're looking <laughs> the wrong way sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's a weird thing because obviously that's where yeah, as you said, you said the, the sort of term upstaging came from and things. And would you say, so obviously we, we discussed this on the last podcast and I'll have probably rambled on in the intro saying to go listen to the other conversation we had. So if anyone's listening to this and you haven't heard the other one, shame on you. We're not repeating old <laughs> ground. Um, but obviously in the old one we, we spoke about, you've, you've basically done enough acting in basically generously in every realm, basically. So you have an understanding of the differences. And in in that way, I was intrigued by, do you do you prefer sort of on stage acting do you prefer is it called camera acting in the biz i don't know um you know what i'll be honest i've never really known what to call it people say i i guess if um, some people can differentiate between screen and tv um yeah commercial yeah i don't know screen acting i just call it screen acting i guess because it's going to be on Mm. a screen yeah, because from from my perspective, as like the the sort of the audience, here we go, I'm doing it. Um, mm-hmm. As the audience kind of viewing it, it would probably be in my mind. It, it's like okay, if you're acting, say on camera, it's because you can do things again. There's not the same pressure of you know uh, if you mess this up while mm-hmm. we're live, you could mess up the entirety. You know, if if you're uh, Henry V and you walk out on stage, you say the wrong line, trip over, and knock a set down. That's people you ruined you ruined this no I pressure for you. That <laughs> well that's it so like do you because obviously it's also like performing on stage in a theater or something is is in my mind more like a music it's almost comparing like music playing a live gig and music in the studio where it's like they hmm. are two very different things but they're still at their cores in a way kind of similar so i'm just intrigued by your sort of thoughts on that yeah there's um with oh with i think it, very few actors, yeah, very few actors start, unless they're sort of child stars or they've, you know, been cherry-picked from from something or, you know, know someone. It's very rare to start on screen first. Um, and I think those that do then would struggle to quite, again, have the, um, supposedly like, you know, people like Keira Knightley really struggled on stage Um Compared to, my, I, I don't know if that's true. I was just the reviews I heard of the first time, first and only show she did on stage. That she sort of struggled with Tom, it. Tom Everett hates yeah. Riz Ahmed. And I'm slating so many people. <laughs> He's slating all these big actors. Next, you're going to say DiCaprio is not even that I'm good. Not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm making it sound like I know best, but uh, no, I think. But most, but most actors really start. I mean, everyone starts on stage, be it you know in the school play or at drama schools or universities or wherever it is, amateur dramatics. They everyone starts on stage, you know, you're not doing that on film. That's all stage acting. Um, and I think it's where you first fall in love with it. So it's quite hard to, it's quite hard to then forget that that's where it all started. And there's always, 
there's something special about theatre, I suppose, is that there's a there's a, a buzz around it. Every show that happens, um, and it was one of the reasons why the National Theatre and other other uh, theatre companies didn't release their um, productions, uh, you know, out to the public. They'll do like one night in cinemas of it being screened live, but they won't release it as like a, something you could buy hmm. because it was a once in a lifetime moment that show will never be the same again even if you had the same brought back the same actors well they're all you know a year older now and they've had different life experiences and they might you know one might have a you know a dodgy knee and one's had a one's have had a child and they're you know happy but tired or whatever that things might be slightly different you know one might be in a new relationship and on cloud nine and or whatever or you know the audience is different the audience is different every single night and because of that, there's so many different things that can happen and can uh, so many variables that every, even though you're performing the same show that you've directed or, you know, or produced in exactly the same way, every time it's a, a single moment in time that will never, mm. should never really be repeated. And it's special for the people that went because you can remember, oh yeah, I remember when this happened or, or whatnot. The same with any live music gig, you know, they don't perform exactly the same show every time. Like things things go wrong, things change, things. Um, so I think that's why, for me at least, there's always something special about each individual show is there's something there. And and I've done tours where I might maybe across the length of the tour, the, the show changes, it gets, things get slicker, like comic moments get tighter. And, you know, the, sometimes the more uh, tragic moments get more drawn out because you're just feeling it more each time. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but you know, this show changes and evolves and, and it's good if, again, good stagecraft is if you can adapt to that instead of just doing, right, I'm going to do the same thing I did on, on day one as on day 82, you know, it's going to be, that's going to be boring. Whereas everyone else is going to, you know, slightly change because you might come in with a, a bad mood one day. You've been out all day and you've done this, that, and the other, and you just got the tube to a show or whatever and you know someone bumped into you on the way or like i don't know your shoelace come undone and someone trod on it and then you tripped over and it hurt your knee and you're in a bad mood and you don't want to do the show anymore i don't want to be here so you know you're in those moments when you're slightly irritated you show your irritation a bit more and you get it all out or like you know vice versa you could be much happier in a really good mood and you know really really um over the moon when you're supposed to be and it it's always going to be different. So it's good to, and you know, that can change the performance for other people as well when that happens. And they can think, oh God, I really had to react to you being, if I did it like normal, that would have looked weird because normally I'm not that, I don't really care when you're that, well, no, I've got a bit upset when you reacted <laughs> to me like that time. So it's good. It means the show sort of, uh, show sort of evolves. Um, and I think that's, with, with the screen, um, very much depends on the, the director you have there's two kind of different directors that you find with screen acting and there's ones that are very interested in the actors and there are ones that do not care about the actors at all and the acting is the act so, you know the acting for, for on screen is the acting department um for some directors and it's that you are the actors and i'm the director and i'm putting together the shots we're getting this beautiful like landscape this beautiful you know working with the director of photography the dop and you know, making sure the sounds are. I'm doing all this stuff. You're the actor, 
you have the lines, you know what you're doing, you do it. And they kind of want you, that's what you do. And they're going to do the rest of the stuff. So they're not really bothered with you. But then you might get directors that are very, very interested and really interested in the performance and want to tweak things. And But it's, yeah, I, I find stay, uh, screen, sorry, I find screen quite hard to contain myself sometimes. <laughs> it's best that you don't give too much away if you, um, or, you know, show, you don't want to show too much. Hmm. I had a teacher who once said, uh, said uh, he says, um, to act is to do. But if you're doing to do, then you're doing do do, which basically meant like if you're you, to act is you know, just act. That's all you got to do. You've got to be mm. just act. But if you're trying to show that you're acting, then it's shit. It's going <laughs> to look shit. <laughs> um, then if you're trying to show, which is some, yeah, sometimes can um, happen on uh, on screen because there's so many other things happening around you that you don't really need to work as hard to show where you are to let you know you're just in the situation and things are going on. There's music coming on over the top, which obviously you don't know what it's going to be like until it's <laughs> until you watch it back. Whereas on the stage, you you have those things around you and you can kind of control these elements because you're there feeling the moment and you can see the audience or, you know, feel them gasping, laughing, not laughing, mm. listening. Yeah, it's much more of a reactionary thing, isn't it? Where it's kind of like when you're on stage, yeah, there is more that can go wrong, but you're more immersed into it. So you can kind of, if you do misstep, it's easier to get back on without maybe the audience even recognising it. But like, mm. you know, if, because on a film, I would presume it's very disjointed because I know like certain actors, I know with films like, you know, really big films, like, you know, Marvel films, Star Wars, that sort of thing, because they're so hot on plot and they're like, no spoilers can come out, blah, blah, blah. An actor... No one knows an, a character's going to die, including the actor sometimes, until the day. You know, sometimes mm. they allow them to. I think with, like, Harry Potter as an example, I think when they started making the films and Alan Rickman was cast as Snape, he and J.K. Rowling were the only people for a while who knew, knew what was going to yeah, happen. Because yeah. I think when the first film came out, she was on the fourth or fifth book. It was around that time. So it was one mm. of those things where only he knew so he had to act in the way these really subtle undertones of being like yeah you're kind they knew of they were going to call it back later on exactly because you can't go full yeah. heel if you know that there are certain times where people can't be redeemed in in cinema and in film and things it's, yeah. it's something me and the guys have quite i say hotly debated we've talked about it and we've passionately talked about it because we're nerds and it's things like you know darth vader and kylo ren are two, are two big ones in star wars but also like a lot of the Marvel films and things when someone's uh, bad becoming good and et cetera, is kind of like how much is someone, how much can someone redeem themselves? You know, that that's often quite a mm. big, uh, quite a big theme in that, in that sort of regard. So with filming and things, it's like you can be playing a character and you don't know what happened to the character in three scenes before, because three scenes mm. before was such a big thing. They're filming that last, for example, that like yeah. I imagine, and also there's scenes that I know, I know, I know I, I know, I can assume it's like, you know, with other films, it can be, you know, when you get a head scar or something, then you, like Game of Thrones, you know, you get a big scar across your face, you know, everything after that, you've got the scar. Yeah, things. Yeah. But it, I feel like filming is more disjointed in the basis. Like I, I haven't done, proper film work to clarify I just know people vaguely who have and things it's like yeah a lot of the time the big budget shot is the last the last thing you do but that's not necessarily the last part of the film it's normally like three quarters through yeah and you have like particularly with film and like you know the bigger you go the more money gets involved you have scheduling issues and you mm. might have you know your star can't do these dates so right okay we're going to do everything with the star for the first 
six weeks, but then we have another six weeks after that when they're going off to do, you know, they're going to be in the final series of Game of Thrones and we've got them for the first six weeks before they go. Um, so we need to get them in all these shots before everyone else works to that schedule because we're paying a lot of money to have this person in it. And now we need to try and fit everything else in and make sure everything else makes sense um, and work around it. So, yeah, a lot of that, I think that's a, quite a common thing. Um, mm. It's interesting. I, so, I was, uh, you know, doing uh, research today for um, Henry the Fifth, which I will be playing this summer, and um, watching lots of videos. And there's um, watching an interview with uh, one of the guys. Um, oh God, what's his name? Henry Castle, mm. I think, uh, who played him in 2015 at the RSC in Stratford upon Avon. And so, the, the play itself, Henry the Fifth, comes with a. Um, it's part of the sort of uh, plays that Shakespeare wrote around the uh, Wars of the Roses, which go from essentially Richard II to Henry IV, part one, part two, Henry V, Henry VI, part one, two and three, and then Richard III. Um, so it's sort of a hundred years of history. And uh, the it's called the Henriad quite often. It's Henry IV, part one, two, and uh, Henry V. And because they feature a lot of the same characters, predominantly Henry V going from being um, really a, uh, a prince, um, uh, absolute lad running around, going out, getting drunk, having fun with his friends, not paying attention to duty, and then sometimes having to come in and go into these battles and do that. But then really he just wants to go down to East London and get drunk and have fun in the bars <laughs> with his friends. And then he becomes the king um, in Henry V, and it starts, you know, he's then the king and he has to then navigate his way through, through France, um, you know, going to France, leading this war, winning the war um, and, you know, inspiring all his troops to do this, that and the other. And it's complete, it's a big arc when you look at it like that. And the actor was saying, and I agree with him in a way that Henry V quite often is quite an interesting character because he's so, I don't even know, um, so heroic in the eyes of British culture. Um, through you know politics and and whatever through you know war and, and a side of you know the uh, Laurence Olivier made a film of him uh, just around World War Two to inspire um, British people and like for the British spirit kind of thing. Um, that's why Laurence Olivier's film was made, and it's such a symbol of you know being British. And he was saying you know if if you go in with what he is at the end, this heroic king, then actually you kind of forget all this stuff about him before, and you really need to show this great arc. But then for most people who are going to come and watch the show, they won't have seen Henry the Fourth, part one and two. They won't know the history of Henry the Fifth or what he was like in real life, mm. um, which is again, completely different to Shakespeare's version. So in a way you have to show, it's, it's a bit of an odd one. Like, do you show him go through this transformative journey? But if you show him sort of too confused and unsure of himself at the start, you think, well, why would anyone go on, go to war with you? all the way to France, why would, you know, why would everyone, why would anyone follow you if you're this unsure of yourself? It makes sense if you've done the whole Henry ad, because then you know, and it's been the same people that have played them the whole way through, you know the journey they've been on and they're not quite ready for this yet, but I have, they have to figure it out now. But then in reality, you can look at it in a different way and you could say, well, okay, I've, you know, I've done a bit of reading on, on the real Henry V and he actually was spending a year 
preparing for this war. He was going to conquer, he was going to invade France no matter what. It didn't really matter if the Pope was on his side or not. It didn't matter if his lords, if his archbishop, he was doing it. He was preparing for war for about a year and then he went. According to Shakespeare, it was like, oh, well, you know, all the time is right. How lucky are we? Oh, we must go. It's God's will. But he was, the real man was adamant he was going to conquer France. So then as an actor playing Shakespeare's Henry V, do you show the guy from Henry IV, which no one in the audience has seen, or do you show the guy from the history, the real man, who is a lot less interesting and you wouldn't really want to go and watch him at a play because he's quite dull, or do you show Shakespeare's version of him which is going to be something in between the two, hopefully without risking that he has a bit of an arc. And because that's, you know, everyone has to go on a journey. And there are, I think with him, there's ups and downs. It's not like an, an overriding arc mm. that he goes on, but there's sort of, he has a lot of wobbles, maybe, <laughs> as opposed to an arc. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. Sort of, like, I think they're sort of trying to comment on your earlier points <laughs> I can't what I said <laughs> no I <didn't> I? <laughs> <laughs> you were hoping I'll drop your hints I forgot I was on the <laughs> ride the thing is it's, with Shakespeare it's one of those things where I know I've described before I have an approximate knowledge on most things so I know a mm. post-it note of information about most subjects and Shakespeare is one of those ones which is just a post-it note I, I know because I can name a lot of his stuff but I think I think what happens in this country is that there is so much weight behind Shakespeare, because obviously he's one of the greatest authors ever and whatnot, um, and he created many of modern tales. You know, there's that yeah. there's that film theory, um, which I think was... Uh, it's something like there's six or there's eight narratives in every single... Uh, I might tell media. you this last time. You might have. I, I knew it before you because I did media studies <laughs> oh, in right, yeah, college. Sorry, yeah, yeah, so you, you didn't you teach me that, I'm afraid. Yeah, of course you did, Mike. You know it first. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously that sort of idea in Shakespeare, we did touch this, yeah, because we said Shakespeare probably did like half of them, I think, or something. Mm. But with Shakespeare, I find that I did, um, and obviously we're the same age, so I presume we did something similar. In, for our American listeners, in secondary school, um, so in year 10 and 11 when we did our GCSEs, which is when you're between the age of 14 and 16-ish. Yeah, 15, 14, yeah. 16, 16. I always yeah. have to, I vaguely remember, I'm like, when did I leave school? 16. <laughs> when did I start college? That's when I could drink. Okay, so I finished when I was 18. But anyway, um, so there's English language um, and English literature. And then English language is both GCSEs, literature was a lot of poetry and then a lot of Shakespeare and then language is more so for about five minutes teaching you how to write and then I can't remember what the other mm. 95% was. But my point is with Shakespeare is that I, for the longest time, using the word hate would be overly aggressive, but I was an angsty teenager, so let's use the word hate. I hated Shakespeare because all of the yeah. stuff that I interacted with was given to me in such a boring way like, I, I compare it to science. When I was in school, hated science, didn't, mm. didn't give a crap. I thought it was boring. I don't want to know about, you know, mitosis and meiosis and all these sorts of other things and, you know, fire risk assessments and all these sorts of other really boring things. And then you come out of school and you go, oh, I can, I can look at anything I want. Oh, there's documentaries by, you know, Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson, which are some of the most interesting things one can watch. Oh, evolution, when you use the example of a polar bear, it's far more, it makes way more sense of just mm. being, oh, there were just bears around ice. One, by a gene mutation that was completely random, was white. And because of that random mutation, they were a better predator because obviously if you're white in snow, you're a better predator. So mm. that one 
uh, individual that had that mutation then you know yeah, could eat more it? food and it could mate more and etc and then there were more of them and then all the ones that were white in that area were then you know etc etc that's generally uh, one of the analogies they just went mad and said look how incredible was this that plants take the bad stuff in the air and make us live by giving us oxygen how fucking amazing is that <laughs> how fucking brilliant is that don't you ever forget it would we be deforested <laughs> cutting down all these trees i don't think we would if it's the science teachers fault i'm saying it here Riz Ahmed, Kieran Knightley, the science teachers are coming that's from it. all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. And it's one of those things where I just think that a lot of the youth today, myself included, when I was that age, which was many years ago now, um, <laughs> have a disdain for Shakespeare because they're shown either the wrong Shakespeare stories or in the wrong format. So, for example, um, a lot of people, a lot of individuals have issues with, um, is it Shakespearean English? Like, there's a lot of, like, there's the Romeo and Juliet with DiCaprio is in Shakespearean English. That's, in, that's, in, that's in the that's the original text, yeah. Original text, yeah. See, I'm a scrub mm. when it comes to this sort of thing. With those sorts of things, the problem is trying to get a 12 to 16-year-old to comprehend anything that isn't within f- exactly what they like specifically is difficult enough as it is. And I remember we were shown the film, I've seen Much Ado About Nothing when I was very mm. young, you know, and it's got, um, God, it's, got, it's got loads of people. It's got the guy who plays Lockhart, whose name always escapes me. Um, it's a Kenneth Branagh film, much to that's that nothing. One. That's Kenneth it. Branagh, Kenneth... it's got uh, Emma Thompson, Emma Thompson, Watson, Thompson Keanu I've seen Reeves. That. Got it's, really scary, um, isn't it? This is how long ago yeah. I saw it. So I saw it when I was so young. But the thing is, I watched that. other people, yeah. Yeah, but that's written in... Isn't that in spoken that's, in the same... That's, yep, yep, yep. That's in Shakespeare's original text, yeah. Yeah, so when I was like 13, I listened, I watched that, and I was like, this is shit. Because I was like, I don't understand what the fuck anyone is saying. So I was just like, I hate this. Because I, I, I no one... No one's ever taught me Shakespearean English. They just, they're like, oh, you just know it. You, you, you vaguely pick things up. And it's like, yeah, but there are certain words that when you're a teenager, you don't, there's already a block learning new things when you're a teenager half the time anyway, because you've got that, mm. a lot of people, myself included at the time, have that angst of, I don't want to know this shit. I want to know stuff I like, you know, like, you know, anime or video games or what are the kids into these days. Fortnite, I think, is the big thing. Minecraft. Yeah, yeah, that's big, yeah, I yeah. played Minecraft when I was in college, so I don't know. Pff, who knows? But like, <laughs> With that, and we were showing King Lear the film as well. Um, I can't remember who enough was in that. I don't think it was anyone famous. But it was about two and a half hours long or something. And once again, it was in the Shakespearean language. And mm. the problem is, is that there has to... I found that with English language, um, English literature rather, as well as what science, and most of school does to be fair, is it, it makes you learn something in a way that isn't necessarily compatible with you as an individual. And it kind of educationally scars you for a long time, like a long time, I was really like, not, I would say anti-science, it makes me sound like a nut job, but like, you know, I just really wasn't interested in how things worked or space or anything. It completely destroyed all my intrigue in uh, in science. And then finishing, <clears throat> I got a lot more interested. So with Shakespeare, I'm kind of, I'm in this vague renaissance of Shakespeare in a sense, where I'm now at that point where I'm like, okay, I know he wasn't a bad writer. I know some of his stories are some of the greatest ever. And I've always loved Macbeth because I remember in primary school, there was a Macbeth (laughs) play and it wasn't in Shakespearean uh, English because I was eight or something. I understood it all. It was funny. It was scary. It was brilliant. It was because you just understood it better because it was, you understood the emotion of what was going on. Potentially, because like, like, I saw like the younger children can pick up languages quicker. Maybe you just understood it. Maybe. Well, I remember it was also Midsummer's Night Dream. I think it was played by the same theatre group, and I remember that because the person had a really cool paper mache donkey head on when. Um, yeah, the they would have done it. In, they would have done it in Shakespearean language. I'm sure. Really? Okay. Well, yeah, there you go. I reckon. I reckon. 
You yeah. think they would? Well, I did. I, I well, whether or not this would make a difference. I went to a Catholic school. I don't know if that would make them more or less inclined to speak in Shakespearean. Probably more because the Bible yeah. is written in. I mean, Shakespeare is hard to write. It sometimes you try and read the Bible, but after I know they've got versions of it that have updated and made it easier to read. But you read some of the original ones, you're like, oh, I have no, so many apostrophes. <laughs> you're just like, I don't know what any of this. Well, means. I mean, Shakespeare was Shakespeare was um, uh, what was he born? Fifteen sixty four, and he died in sixteen sixteen. So that's because uh, I know you're a big Shakespeare fan. So I want to preface yeah, yeah. saying I used to hate him. Now I don't. He, I'm sorry yeah. that I offended you. Please no, no, talk about fine. Shakespeare. So he was um, he, active like 1592 to 1616. And mm. I mean, King Lear is a very um, heavy going play. It is. It is hard. I, I enjoyed it when I was at school for some reason. I don't know why. I just kind of got it. You know, when mm. someone says, um, explain this word to me. And yeah. you know this word, you know what the word means. And he said, like, but don't use it in a sentence because, you know, obviously, mm. like, then you're just using the word to explain it. And you think, ah, it's the same thing I found, used to find with Shakespeare. Like, I know exactly what they're saying, but I can't explain it to you because I can't explain it in a better way than he, he's just literally said it. Mm. Um, so I, so, uh, yeah, maybe I'm just a, a bit of an, anom- an anomaly that I understood explain it. Explain that word. Um, no, I know what the word means. <laughs> don't worry. I know what the word means. Sorry. <laughs> trying to think how i would without using it <laughs> uh, i think an outlier but really yeah. without using synonyms it's very difficult if you said try to explain a word without using a synonym i'd be like <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> but sorry um, anyway yeah shakespeare yeah i mean the, the thing about shakespeare as well is it, it i think for a long time it was so and this goes you know centuries back really became like almost elitist um mm. And the truth is, when he was writing it, it wasn't elitist. It was for the common man. It cost, you know, the plays would go on for hours. I mean, most of the full-length plays now, if you did them through, would be, uh, you know, over three hours. You know, I think Hamlet is the or Hamlet is the longest, and that would probably come to around four and a half. Um, it is very rarely. Uh, Kenneth Branagh did do a full-length version of it. It was nothing cut at all. It's about four and a half. It's um, there are incredible moments, but there are obviously some points when you think. Oh, I'm, I'm even for a Shakespeare fan. I'm getting a bit tired of this. Um, it's a good film. It's got great cameos. People like Robin Williams just pop up out of nowhere for like two lines. Um, wow. But anyway, that's a that's a ta- yeah. But so it's it, it can. I mean, most of Shakespeare really was well. All of it was so many times was politically or like satirical. It could be sensitive of what was going on at the time, not too. Maybe not satirical is the right word. It would it would comment on the current mm, times. Social commentary. They would yeah. yeah they would make social commentary. Not not satire because God forbid he was if he was satirical he'd have his head chopped off. So you know <laughs> that's why Richard the Third is the most evil person in the world because the man who killed Richard the Third was the Queen's grandfather Elizabeth the First grandfather Henry the Seventh. So you know if he said that Richard the Third was the best man that ever lived and it was wrong that he got killed then. You know, he's he's showing that to the grandchild of the person who did it. So you know, and the queen. <laughs> so you know, of course he's going to be choose your one sided. Yeah. What's it called? Yeah. Like, uh, learning the room or something like. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like yeah, yeah learn the probably room. Probably don't yeah. want to do that. Read the room. Yeah. <laughs> Read the room. Yeah, yeah. Most uh, so many of his uh, so many of his the lines that you I worked sort of briefly with a, a man called Ben Crystal who does a wonderful book called Shakespeare on Toast. Uh, which is for anyone who doesn't really fully understand Shakespeare, um, but would like to, he makes it, he breaks it down very, very simply. And he's a really, really um, fantastic teacher of it. And he did some work 
um, and they would perform Shakespeare in OP, which is original pronunciation, which was basically, which means it was, would have been like what they, how, how it would have sounded at the time. And so many of what is said, it, so many of the words that are said, because quite often you read it and you think, that doesn't, that doesn't, word doesn't make sense in there. It's because if you speak it the way they would have spoken it, it would have had a slightly different meaning and the spelling might have changed. Basically, what I'm coming down to is you'd be surprised that basically half of what he says is cock jokes. It is, it is, it is crude, it's crass, and it's not really, it's meant to be taken lightly and fun and to entertain a lot of people. Because you have like in, so the Globe today in London is an exact replica of the original one. And, you know, you fit kind of pre-COVID, I guess, 500, 500 plus people in the pit standing I think tickets. I've been there actually mm, I think it's only a fiver I, it's amazing um, I think I have because I'm intrigued by I'm intrigued by Shakespeare as a his, as a historical figure and I've always yeah. if I can go to a museum about Shakespeare if I'm in the area I'm like yes I'll go but if it's like do you want to read some Shakespeare it's like no I don't no, want to know oh, about don't it don't read it that wasn't <laughs> it wasn't written to be read though as well that's the thing so so another thing like uh, when the actors used to get their scripts they would get their script because it was very expensive to print paper incredibly expensive and they were making no money so they would get the script the actor would get his lines and the two lines two or three words before his line so he's got to be listening he might be waiting for 15 minutes until he gets his line but he's got to wait until or you know it might be it might be the next three words later or it might be in 10 minutes time so he's got to be listening to find out but he didn't know who was what was happening before him. So it's, it would have been quite interesting because they've all got to be excited, listening, let's see what's going on. And you're there entertaining a lot of people who are going to be vocal if it's, if it's shit. Um, <laughs> but today it sort of gets put across as, you know, things like um, this thing called iambic pentameter, oh, which I is a technical that. word. Yeah, I remember that. So it's a technical word for a, a 10 stress uh, line, which is de-dum, 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 de-dum. Dum 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 which is how they speak in verse. It's actually how we speak in modern English. What I just said was iron bit pandemeter. If you want to go back and listen again, so for example, like just thinking of it in a really easy way, because you can make it sound really boring if you try, but you don't have to when you do it properly. That was two two lines, and I so so thinking of you know what what we're going to do in the show so um henry v once more under the breach dear friends once more or close the walls up with our english dead in peace there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility but when the blast of war blows in our ears then imitate the actions of the tiger right that's five lines that would go once more unto the breach dear friends once more or close the walls up with our english dead in peace, there's nothing so becomes a man. There's more to stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the actions of the tiger. How boring is that? But when you do it properly, it's like, oh, mm. it didn't sound weird the first time. <laughs> it sounded like, oh, oh something's <laughs> happening. This is exciting. But then you do it. No wonder we're all fucking bored today. This is a really <laughs> dull English lesson. <laughs> But it's just a natural rhythm of speech, which is why it was actually so clever. And that's probably why, in a way, um, scholars are, uh, love it so much, because it's so clever 
but it didn't necessarily mean to be clever. And and quite often the the, the actor would have so he would have his lines or yeah, I was going to say he or she, but no, it was no she's. The boys played women, um, so he would have his lines, and they wouldn't necessarily know what had just happened, but they would probably know how to react. I remember having a, a line. I was doing a Iago speech, and there was something about it that was, um, you know, oh god, um, I can't remember. I can't remember what that one is. Um, but it was something about it that was so slippery and so snaky about his words that every single syllable was just sounding like a snake, and it. Oh, okay, you kind of get an idea of what he's saying. And the same way of like Ophelia has this line, um, one line, which is, oh, woe is me, which is quite a famous line. Um, people might have heard it. But that is meant to be, it's, it's meant to show that she is so horribly upset. And it's it's there as a great gift to the actor of not, oh, woe is me. That's that's not what it's meant to be. Is you hold on to the syllable and oh, woe is me, which lengths it out and it actually becomes emotive. Um, and, and the actor playing Ophelia would have known that that is a sad line because you can't do that. You can't do angrily. Oh, woe is me. You know, <laughs> oh, woe is me. It, so it was very, it was actually, you know, it, I think it's very clever. It's very, it is actually so much more simple than it needs to be or it needs to be put across, I think. Yeah, it's one of those things. It comes, it's with a lot of things, isn't it? It's uh, comparing it to music in some ways because the rhythm of it and things is quite easy for me. And it's just like, you know, I've done, I've had it before where I've you know seen a band and I've gone and see the sport acts and stuff. And you see the sport acts, you go, wow, these guys are packing a punch. These guys are amazing. They've got performance and everything. And then you listen to their studio album and you go, nah, it's a bit crap, isn't it? Like the same songs, but because mm. the, the uh, production isn't very good. And then obviously after making the album and spending, because making music costs a bloody fortune if you haven't got a home studio which most people haven't and it's like when you you spend x amount of money on making the track and blah 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 and then when you play it and tour it and blah 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 eventually as you kind of say like if you play it live so much you realize oh well if i add a little you know there's five seconds here where i'm not doing anything why don't i just do a little blah, 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 solo for a fun and then live yeah. that becomes part of oh shit that's not in the you know that's not the studio version that's yeah better. yeah and it's like one of the bands biffy clara is the biggest example of that because i i like biffy clara i think they're pretty good but like I saw them at Sonosphere one year, and I, I like relatively every genre of music. I like Slipknot, I like Seer, I like uh, Hops In, lots of S's. Um, but like, you know, anything, rap, classical, whatever. Um, and I remember seeing Biffy Clyro live at this uh, music festival, and I was like, God, these guys are a lot heavier than I thought they were. I thought they were quite, you know, uh, placid in a way. I thought they were quite mm. uh, paced. And then I heard some of the songs, like, this is amazing. And when I went back and listened to them, I was like, all these songs sound like the song I just heard, but watered down. And yeah. I feel like in some in some way to try to draw the parallel there for um, sort of analogies and things is like, as you say, Shakespeare was made to be performed. Mm. When you have it written on paper, one reads, uh, even if it's written in stage and even if it says, says emotively or, you know, says angrily, happily, whatever. People, when you read, interpret things differently, which is why, you know, a lot of the time, especially with young adult novels and things, if mm. you have a cat, normally with YA novels and things, it's normally not actually the content. It's actually just the main characters are that age. That's normally, um, from the authors I've spoken to, that's generally the idea is just like, 
aside from a few really dark subjects that generally only adult books go into, you know, YA is just the main characters are a teenager generally, because then the young adults reading it connect with the character and stuff. But when you have that, if you connect with the character and you're reading it as the character, your own interpretation of that still will be different to the next person's and the next person's. Yeah. And I think there's a Shakespeare, because when most people learn it, it's in school, it's not in a way which is you can learn how you want to learn. It's you have to learn however basically the teacher slash the curriculum interprets it. And if mm. the teacher isn't passionate about Shakespeare or if the teacher is too passionate about Shakespeare and doesn't understand why a 14-year-old in you know the early 2000s doesn't care about Shakespeare, rather, <laughs> yeah. than, tr- rather than lingering, you know, rather than trying to understand that and go, right, let's try and figure out what's the reasoning. I'm going to try and make it more exciting. Instead, it's more like, if you don't like this, you're an idiot. It's like, because yeah. that's the kind of, not I, I liked a lot of my teachers, but that was the general feel I got, which was like, oh, there's something, I don't like Shakespeare, so I'm either I'm stupid or there's something wrong with me. When in reality, it's, I was 14. I, how many 14-year-olds yeah, yeah. really love Shakespeare that much it, when they've only been introduced to it in school? So I think that's, is that kind of vaguely where you're, my reading that sort of idea right in a sense? Because I, I don't know, like you, did you, did, were you into Shakespeare in school? Like when you, or did you get into Shakespeare before school? That's a... No, I think I, I think I just I did enjoy it at school. I remember doing Macbeth, but I think I was in year nine when we did Macbeth, mm. and I remember enjoying it then. And I think I, I we did much to do about nothing. And I think the first lesson was watching that film, and I actually loved the film. Mm. Um, and because I think Kenneth Branagh has a very brilliant way of making things sound very natural, very English, very normal. Mm. Um, I, I've had uh, my uh, two stepbrothers who are not academic in the slightest. And, uh, well, I'm sure that at school that they were the naughty kids kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, and they even still, like, you know, not even probably like two Christmases ago went, you know, so why is Shakespeare good then? I don't get it. I still don't get it. So why do you like Shakespeare? Why is Shakespeare good? It's just old. I said, well... You know, I can know there's lots of reasons why I could answer, but you know, there's. I, I think maybe the problem is it's looking at it through such a, a small lens. The the reasons that I think Shakespeare are good and coming from me now as an adult are not the reasons that I would have picked out of from English class. It's not. Mm. not um, the poetry is brilliant and sometimes the words and the way that things are put together and the amount of like uh, words that or sayings that are in the English language that are from Shakespeare that sometimes the amount of them that are in there that I don't realize and then you watch a play and you go oh oh, oh we say that <laughs> that's, oh god that's where it's from <laughs> it's like a yeah. vocabulary cameo vocameo there you go yeah. invented it vocameo vocameo um but you know the, I think the reasons why it was why it was good at the time and why it stood the test of time is really because he, in a way that a playwright probably hadn't before, he made people like Henry V or, you know, Macbeth or all these other, like, sometimes historical figures, sometimes, like, um, you know, creations, even if they were taken from other ideas, they were, like, you know, creations, um, but made them into real people. And it was like, oh, Oh, I could be like that. And I said, well, don't be too ambitious because if you get too ambitious and then you start, you know, might start thinking too far and you might start getting, you know, getting the urge to kill your boss kind of thing. And, you know, don't, <laughs> don't get too far. But then also, you know, it's, you know, in Henry V, he has this whole scene with some soldiers when he's disguised, he goes in disguise in the, into this 
the soldier's camp and he talks to them. They have no idea he's the king and he's trying to converse with them and they're like, oh, we don't want to be here. Like, this is, this is awful. And he's like, no, 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 I think but the king does want to be here. So, yeah, well, can leave him to it then. Oh, he's just going to give himself over. And it's, he's, then the king has to sort of, you know, later on has a bit of a monologue and he's talking to the, the audience or himself or whoever saying that, you know, oh, I am just a man. I'm just a guy. And okay, I have all these ceremonies and I have this crown and these things on me, but I'm just a man. I'm, you know, I'm scared of this and I have these issues and, and these things happening. But, you know, and there's, you know, if there's peace in the country, you get to feel it, but I don't because I'm still trying to keep it. And I'm working daily to keep the peace and you're just there enjoying it. And, and how lucky are you to go to sleep at night, just eating some bread and falling asleep and, and how, how I wish I could do that but I can't because I have to do this. You know, God calls on me to do this sort of thing, um, which is, you know, he was very devout, Henry V. That's uh, true in Shakespeare and the real life versions of him. He was very, very, very devout, um, hmm. which, you know, as I said before, I'm atheist. So I have to try and uh, overcome that as an actor. <laughs> not overcome that. That's a, that's a, that's a joke. I, yeah, I, I, I knew you gonna, were joking. You know, the character is very much, uh, very much believes he's sent from God. And that's the end of part one. Thanks as always for tuning in, guys. As I said in the intro, part two will be out next week at the same time. But if you can't wait that long, head over to patreon.com slash genuine chit chat. And for as little as one pound a month, you get access to the Patreon exclusive feed, which will have this whole episode unsplit released on there, as well as you get the extra show Afterthoughts, which me and Megan do at least once a week. And we talk about movies and TV shows and other stuff. And we've been going to the cinema quite a lot recently. So there's lots of new stuff in that regard. But yeah, just go over to Patreon, take a little look around. There's lots of other cool stuff on there as well. So what's coming up in part two then? Well, our great discussion continues. We speak about what method acting is, and then it goes on to a much wider berth of topics that flits around here, there, and everywhere. We talk about people not knowing what they need, psychopaths, human choice, fulfillment, something called the human shadow, which is quite interesting, life experiences, memories, and lots of other things like that. So lots and lots of fun in part two, so make sure you tune in for that. And as I said in the intro, Tom Everett's first appearance on Genuine Chit Chat was episode 124. Make sure you check that out if you haven't already. And make sure you follow Tom on Instagram as well if you have it. Details to that are in the description. So what have we got coming up then, guys? Well, the next episode I've got due to record is actually with a friend called Moxie Labouche. She's been on this show twice before, I think. At Christmas, myself and Megan with Moxie did a US versus UK episode for Christmas and stuff, and we're doing another one of those for like a more of a summary edition in a sense. So really excited about sorting that out. I'm recording that next week, so that'll be out after part two drops on this feed of this Tom Everett chat. Then I'm going to be going away for two weeks, so I am probably going to put up a couple of things from Patreon on there, just because I won't have time to edit and sort out another show and things. So that'll just be two kind of filler episodes in a sense, uh, and then I'll be back afterwards and we'll figure out which episode i'll be releasing at that time i've got lots of other cool things in the pipeline for recording but i'm not going to delve into those quite yet so aside from that guys i've actually been quite busy with guest spots so i was recently on an episode of mandatory marvel and dc with max Byrne. we spoke about one of the new 52 batman comics called endgame which is quite cool uh, myself megan and tonya todd discussed the loki series in two full episodes so you can find that on the feed of comics emotion as well also on top of that you can listen to myself and chris phelps of comics emotion talk about the new black widow movie there's lots of spoilers in that and that's also on the feed of comics emotion that is in the tv and movies episode uh, which was released about 
a week and a half, two weeks ago of this episode dropping. So lots of cool things there. There's a few other guest spots that I've got lined up that are either going to be released soon or that I'm recording soon. Lots of exciting things. I'm just trying to show up on everyone's podcasting feeds all the time. And you can also check out my Star Wars show, which the details of that are in the description. Uh, I just go through Star Wars comics. You don't need to have read a single Star Wars comic ever. You can literally just tune in. I talk about the story and the narrative and I give like plot details and whatnot. But I also talk about connective tissue, you know, some of the characters that pop up, some of the species, some of the planets. So if you're reading a comic and you're like, oh, who's this random person that I recognize vaguely from one of the original trilogy films? I am the person who tells you who they are, what they've kind of done and where you may recognize them from. So that's really everything in a nutshell, guys. I'm not going to ramble on any longer here. So I just want to say a quick shout out to BZ The Voice. He was on an episode a few weeks ago. He's actually been on Genuine Chit Chat twice because he does the amazing intro and outro reads for Genuine Chit Chat, which are incredible. And I love the sound of his voice. So make sure you check out his website, which is also in the description. So anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you listening, especially all the way to the rambly end. I hope you guys have a great week and I'll be talking to you next week with part two of Tom Everett. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.